Good. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. So we're going to be in Matthew 22, and we're going to try and look at verses 15 all the way to 46. We'll see, we'll see how far we make it. But in this chapter, it's structured right here. There's four big questions that arise, and three of the questions are asked of Jesus, and then one question is asked by Jesus, and then all three of these questions are meant to trip or trap him. So these are loaded questions. And you can look at chapter 22, verse 15, and then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. So that's the banner over all these questions. They're trying to trip. They're trying to trap. But what's interesting is what they mean for evil, God is going to turn for good. And Jesus is going to turn for good. And in these four questions, they get at four of the most fundamental core questions that everybody should be asking in life and about their life. So let's get a little, little background. Um, I found it fascinating. was reading a, a, a Jewish legal scholar named David Dobby, who... I don't know if he's the inspiration for a Harry Potter character or not, but might be one of the most brilliant uh, 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 academics in the past century. Uh, taught at Cambridge, Oxford, then UC Berkeley, and he was a trained ancient law scholar and was so fascinating. He's got these different lectures where he would just read sections of ancient texts and just kind of start riffing on, on what it makes him think about. And when he read this passage, he says, oh, it's obvious what's happening here, because in the Jewish Passover, part of the legal requirements of the ceremony, you know, you'd have the entire family would be in the worship service, and part of the dynamic give and take would be the children would be asking questions, and then the father who's leading the family worship service would be teaching through the questions of the, the children. And there was a certain part of the Passover ceremony, so remember this is Passover week, this is all in the background, and a certain part of the Passover ceremony is three of the sons would in order ask a legal question, a moral question, and a conduct question. And then the father would ask the fourth question. And then Rabbi Nathan Goldberg uh, has a fascinating thing that the four questions asked in that part of the, the ceremony are, are intended to reveal four types of children. So kids, you can think, which type of kid am I? Adults, you can think, which type of kid am I? And so the first question, he said, the, the, the first question is to reveal the wise child who wants to know the meaning of things. They ask why. So the second type of question is the contrarian. So every one of you knows that it, every family has the contrarian. And what's interesting that he says about the contrarian, the child who's the contrarian, is that that child asks critical questions, but the problem with the contrarian, he says, is they arrogantly exclude themselves from the problem that they see. So that's a contrarian. And then he says you have the child who is the, the simple child, and they just want to know what, what the world is all about. And then the fourth child is the, the humble child. And by humble, he means they don't even know what questions they should be asking. And so the father asks the question for them and says, this is the question that you actually should be asking. And it's beautiful because we can kind of see those different things throughout this whole section. And one thing Matthew's doing, he's kind of playing on that because these aren't children who are asking the questions. These are adults. 
And the whole point is that they're all being contrarian. And then the fourth question, Jesus turns and said, this is the question you should be asking. So let's kind of walk through these, these four questions. You know, the first question is the political question. And in every era of human history, Christians have to wrestle with how much of themselves do they give to the, the political uh, uh, world they find themselves, to their country as governments, concerns, sins, celebrations. Second question is the morale, uh, mortality question. Like what happens when you die? And that question is especially prescient for cultures who want, who go out of their way to try to pretend like it's never going to happen to them. And then the third question is really maybe the most important question for us. It's the question of uh, demands, priorities. You know, in a world where options abound and opportunities are endless and choices can be all-consuming and all-paralyzing, the, the question is, all right, what do you focus on? And then question four is the most important question, who is Jesus? What do we make of him? And so I'm struck as we go through these and just marvel as we go through Matthew because the miracles of Jesus are in some sense meant to impress us. But I don't think, at least I know I haven't paid sufficient attention to the wisdom of Jesus and the intelligence of Jesus. I mean, you think about it, you could make a pretty compelling case, especially if you believe like we do that Jesus was God and man together in the flesh, that this is the most intelligent human who's ever walked the earth. And so we can marvel at his, his wisdom and so these three questions come at him. They're three questions that are meant to trap. And uh, it's just fascinating, the parallels. He, he began his ministry with three temptations from Satan meant to trap him. He's ending here with three questions meant to trap him. It seems that Satan hadn't stopped tempting him. He just changes the methodology and who's doing the speaking. But let's pick up first question. This is the political question. So look in verse 15 through 22. When the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him, in his words. And they sent their disciples to him. Isn't that interesting? They don't go. They send their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true and you teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion for you're not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not. So here, I mean, this is Jesus's chance to get us out of paying taxes forever. Let's see if he takes the golden opportunity for us. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me that coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness is inscription is on this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. So first question, the political question, um, you know, uh, Israel at this time, they're not independent. They're a colonized satellite of the Roman uh, imperial power. They're an occupied territory. And at this point in their history, you know, there's, there's fluctuations when certain political questions are just explosive. And then there's times in, in, in life when they're not as, as explosive. I've been reading a fabulous biography, and it was about um, someone who kind of in, in the early 
cities, like in a college campus, and how explosive the, the political questions were then. And we all lived through a season recently where political questions were so intense and explosive and, and answers could instantly put you uh, in, in fractured relationships. And this is a world where Jesus is living right now. These questions are intense. They are explosive. If you say the wrong thing, it can get you killed really quickly. And so this is a powder keg of revolutionary and radical activity. Now, most people who refuse to pay the tax, what they would do is leave their home. They take up residence in the hills and the deserts. We've been to Israel like Masada and all these places. They, they leave um, and they began the guerrilla warfare kind of style on the Romans. That's who the zealots were. One of Jesus' disciples was one of the zealots. They were called the Securi because what they would have, they had these little daggers and they would keep them in their cloak. And then in big public things, they would see a Roman, somebody that they wanted to assassinate. And the dagger would come out and they'd stab them in the crowd and then take off. So that's kind of who these people are. That's one of Jesus' disciples. It's a marvel that him and Matthew could get along at all. And so they put the question to them. Now, Jesus knows if this question is carelessly answered, it's disaster on both sides. This is a lose-lose question. Now, you also need to hear the, the combination. Look in verse 16. It's the Pharisees and the Herodians. They're coming together. You need to hear that almost like um, there were MAGA supporters and Black Lives Matter protesters joined together to protest X. You say, huh. That's an interesting combination. So Herodians, uh, Pharisees, just so you can kind of plot and kind of track the story, the Herodians would be those on the far right politically, and it's the Pharisees who are on the far left politically. And they come together, and they're both trying to attack Jesus. Now notice their tactic, verse 16. You can just hear it. They want to butter him up with flattery, but he can see right through it. And some of the irony of their flattery is that everything they say is actually true. They just don't believe any of it. That's the problem. Uh, if you just take them, that their words at face value, what they say is, is right. And it's true. But Jesus can see right through it. And he can see the intent behind the question. It's such a haunting, because uh, he asks, it's, oh, he's aware of their malice. See that in verse 18. And so they ask for, is it lawful? So lawful is not, is it legal? That's, is it, a better way to say, is that biblical? Is it biblical uh, to pay? Because they know by law they have to pay it. That's not the question. The question is, is it biblical? And so he asked for the coin. So he wants the coin. Now on the coin, you'd have one side, you'd have the image of, of Caesar, you'd have Tiberius. And then on the other side of the coin, you have his mother, Livia. And there's an inscription that goes around the coin and it says, Caesar Augustus, Phileas Augustus, Tiberius Caesar, the worshipful son of the divine Augustus. So that's what the, is on the coin. So nearly all Orthodox Jews, everyone believes they're holding a portable idol. So this isn't just what they would call dirty money. This is an idol. And what's fascinating is, notice, so, so he's, Jesus is being, everything he says and does right now, they're looking and judging him. And it's interesting, he doesn't even have one on his purse. So he, he's not holding one, but he's not unwilling to touch it. So even that would be scandalous to some in his audience. He's not afraid to handle it, but he doesn't have one. And then he asked him, he says, all right, whose, whose image is this? 
Here's the great term, it's Caesar's. We'll give to Caesar what belongs to him and give to God what belongs to him. And so, of course, you can unpack the wisdom, you know, what, what belongs to God. Whose image, where's God's image in the world? It's us. What belongs to him? Everything. And so everyone even knows that Jesus has very skillfully navigated these tricky waters. But what are some quick just lessons we can kind of pull out? Uh, one, uh, Jesus does, uh, he is respect for the state. I mean, the state is meant to be God's servant for our well-being. And he doesn't take them up on outlawing taxes altogether. It's interesting how different he is from Josephus. You know, Josephus, Josephus is one of his famous lines is, taxation is another, is slavery by another name. And Jesus doesn't go down that route. He wants us to honor the state, God's servant for our well-being. It's not the ultimate problem, though. Uh, one of the key things about the political question is keeping uh, the political questions in their right place. About 10 years ago at TGC, uh, at the time, Senator Ben Sass, who's now the president of the University of Florida, a uh, senator from Nebraska, spoke and gave a brilliant talk on the importance of keeping politics in its proper place. And that's one of the things uh, Jesus is putting here. One of my convictions about how to think about these things is the idea of sphere sovereignty, that God has designed certain spheres. The church is a sphere. The uh, family is a sphere. The uh, civil governing authorities are a certain sphere, and they have certain roles and responsibilities, and they need to understand their place. But Jesus uh, navigates that political question very skillfully. And for us, really, the application is, are you obeying what he says? He says, render to God the things that belong to God. So are you doing that? I mean, what belongs to God? One of the things God says, what belongs to me is part of the gifts that I have given you. That's a tithe or you give back to me. One of the things that belongs to me is your time. You're a steward of your time. You're a steward of this life that I've given you. What belongs to me is the worshipful praise of my people. Are you giving that back to me? Are you rendering him? Uh, the things that he is due. So he skillfully navigates that first political question. Let's look at the second one about life and death. That same day, the Sadducees came to him who say, there is no resurrection. So you got to see, all right, they, they don't believe that there's a resurrection. Now notice the hypothetical they put before him. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must bury the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. And so too the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died in the resurrection, therefore. Of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, neither, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. 
So who are the Sadducees? Now the Sadducees come on the scene, and Mark and Luke only mention them here. So these aren't people who take a major uh, space in the Gospels. These are the wealthy aristocrats. They love Greek culture. They are the collaborators with Roman power. They're pleasure-loving. They're anti-supernaturalists, materialists. They view themselves as the sophisticated, educated elite. They are the uh, kind of ultimate winners in this, in this world. They're at the top. They don't believe in the resurrection. They only hold to the first five books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy, but don't really know that very well either. And you can tell by their question, they're just playing games. Like in some sense, this isn't or like we're talking about resurrection or talking about these things. And it's just kind of toying with ideas, but they're just playing games. Because they give this hypothetical, absurd scenario that shows they haven't even wrestled with what the point of the law was anyway. The point of the law was so that families don't become destitute by untimely deaths. And so the point is family stability. And they're just, they're just playing games. And I love how Jesus has no time for them at all. You are wrong. No debate, no question. You're wrong. And you're wrong because you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. You know, they were supremely confident in their opinions, and he cut right to them. Don't know the scriptures. You know, it's, it's a challenging thing. Like, I wonder if Jesus was standing here now, what he would say we're wrong about. I wonder how blunt he would be. You're wrong, and you're wrong about this because you don't know the scriptures. And if we're honest, see, all they even acknowledged was the first five books of Moses, and they didn't, <laughs> they had, uh, I mean, for us, our Bible's pretty big. You know, it's over a million words. They, in essence, had a smaller Bible, and even that, they didn't know it, didn't take it serious. I wonder what he'd say to us, the challenge. I am continually humbled about how little of the Bible I actually know. A good friend of mine spent the last six years working on a commentary on Acts, and it's phenomenal. And I heard him, he was joking on a podcast this week that he's embarrassed when he reads the book of Acts because there's so much he reads now and didn't see and didn't have in the commentary. It's like, ah, how could I miss it? Because there's so much depth. And so they, they don't know. But notice what they're playing with. They're actually playing with the reality of resurrection. They're playing with life after death. See, the gospel will never be meaningful and moving and powerful unless you understand what Jesus is triumphing over. And the, one of the core things he's triumphing over is death. And it might not be a pleasant thought, but it might be worth just taking a moment and thinking or reminding yourself, you're going to die. You know, one day, one morning, the, the sun will rise and you won't see it. The birds will greet the dawn and you won't hear them. Friends and family will gather at a, I was going to say a, a church. They'll gather in probably some fellowship hall somewhere and somebody will bring some type of chicken and ham and scallop potatoes and they'll talk about your life and there'll be kids there who can't wait till it's over so they can get back to watching or doing whatever they really wish they were doing. And your life will end and the rest of the world, somebody, you know, might think. And most of us just aren't prepared to die. We don't think about these things. And what Jesus is pressing on is the reality, resurrection. It won't be powerful to you unless you understand this is the last enemy that I have triumphed. I'm coming to triumph over. 
So he's going to bring that victory. But if he came and he challenged you, what would he say? You're wrong. What is it that you don't know in the scriptures of the power of God? You won't appreciate the gospel or Jesus' victory over this last enemy until you stare that enemy in the face. And they were unwilling to do that. And then notice the third question, the biblical question, the priorities of first importance. And I just love how God-centered Jesus is in all of his responses. He was that way in the temptation. He battled them with these God-centered responses. It's God is above the state. It is God over death. And now it's God over every other human opportunity and priority. God is the main reality in Jesus's life. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. There's all these echoes from Psalm 2 that the, the, the nations are gathering to plot. Uh, so they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, don't think legal lawyer, think biblical scholar, So how do we obey uh, the law of Moses? He asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and all the uh, prophets. So again, this is another question meant to try and trap him. They're not seeking to understand. And Jesus doesn't give any new information. He quotes uh, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, and he quotes Leviticus 19. So it's one of the common misconceptions that Jesus is bringing in and doing all of these kind of new things. He's quoting the Old Testament. And the Shema was the basic prayer that every, every Jewish uh, man and woman and child would pray twice every single day, in the morning and in the evening. And these two commands are the basic seed that all of the rest of the scriptures then unfold and unpack. So you can take like the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are unpacking the seed, the first four commandments. What does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul? This is in Commandments 1 through 4. How do we love our neighbor as ourselves? 5 through 10. The entire book of Deuteronomy has taken these two seeds and let's unpack them and illustrate them and give case studies of what does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And what does it mean to love your neighbor uh, as yourself? And the first call is to love God totally, fully. This is evidenced and illustrated by our worship. How do we worship him? Do we come into his presence? Do we sing his praise? Do we lift up songs of adoration, praising the holy, holy, holy one? So how do we live a life of worship? And then how do we then go out into the world, as we said in our church covenant, embodying that gospel out into the world, loving others as ourselves? I love the way Luke teaches this same concept because Jesus has asked this question multiple times. That's a hot button issue in, in their world. And when Jesus is asked in Luke, Luke then gives two stories to illustrate what does it mean to love the Lord your God, all heart, mind, and soul. It's Mary and Martha. And remember, Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, learning from him. And then what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? It's the Good Samaritan. That's what it means to go out and love your neighbor. That's how Luke frames these two things. We come into his presence, and then we go out into the world. And so you think about your own life. Do I have those rhythms in my life? The rhythms of coming into his presence, the rhythms of going out so I can love him fully, totally. You know, one of the amazing things about this commandment is the commandment is an invitation to be whole. 
Like we live in such a divided, fractured world where everything is fracturing our attention, our hopes, our joys, our thoughts, our being. And this is an invitation to come and to be whole. Love the Lord. It can bring clarity to your mind. It can bring settledness to your heart and your emotions and give direction and meaning to your life. It's a, it's a wholeness that every one of us wants. And so how do you experience it? How do you get it? You know, the problem that the Sadducees had is they didn't know the word and they didn't know his power. But it's the power of God that brings the fullness and the wholeness of God. And, you know, Paul celebrates. He says, why do I love the gospel? Why am I not ashamed of it? Because in it, this good news that tells us how do we get right in God's sight, that's our problem. Sin has fractured us. We're not whole. Our relationship with God is broken. Our relationship with ourselves is broken. Our relationship with others and the world is broken. How do we get made whole again? First, we have to be put right in God's sight. And I'm not ashamed of this gospel because it is the power of God for what? For salvation, for bringing in that wholeness and the restoration to who? To everyone who believes. And what do we have to believe? We have to believe that sin has shattered us and that relationship is broken and we now stand under God's righteous judgment. But Jesus has mercifully stepped into our place and he's borne our condemnation and in our place condemned he stood. And now if I repent of my sins and turn to him for forgiveness and grace, I can be made right in God's sight. And once I'm made right in God's sight, then I now, by his Holy Spirit, am unified to the Son and I'm indwelled by the Spirit and I can live a life of power. So why Jesus says, wait in Jerusalem till power comes upon you. That's the Holy Spirit who's going to indwell them. So how do we know? How do we experience these things? The power that the Sadducees were scoffing at is the power to live the resurrection life now. To live the life where death has been defeated and I live the resurrection life now. That's what we celebrate when we celebrate baptism. We celebrate people who are declaring that they are one with Christ and they are now, uh, they've died to their old self and they've risen again to live the resurrected life. And that's what uh, Jesus is pointing us towards. See, none of them realize that on this week, he's bringing about the very act that's going to open up the door so the power of God can flow down to us and come in us and live out through us. And then he gave us a way to celebrate and to remember so that every time we gather, we remember what he did to purchase for us that newness and the resurrection of life. So on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread represents my body that's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then he took the cup and he said, this cup represents my blood that's shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the pathway in. This is the purchase that purchases the power of the Holy Spirit to come towards you. So you repent of your sins and you believe what I'm doing for you. Then you receive my mercy and grace. Lord, we thank you for your word. I thank you for the wisdom of your son who can skillfully navigate all of the difficult 
issues and questions that can be thrown at him and can wisely point us back to what is ultimate and what matters most. So I pray for everyone here in this room. I pray that you would help us as we live in deeply divided political times. Help us to navigate well. Help us to navigate wisely. Help us always to remember that the core calling that we have is to love you with all heart, mind, and soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, even when those neighbors uh, disagree with us, even when those neighbors might uh, offend us or discourage us. Um, and we thank you for the forgiveness we have when, when we offend and when we are the ones who are discouraging. So help us to navigate those. I thank you for the wisdom to point us to what's ultimate. Thank you for the victory of your son over our ultimate enemy, which is death. So I pray that everyone in here can live in the light of that victory. Uh, so no more fear, no more guilt, no more shame. And all this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen.